If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk to Professor Yassin Dutton. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum to you. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. It's good Wait, to be here. Yeah. Very wonderful to have you on, sir. For those who don't know, Professor Yassin is Emeritus Professor of Arabic Studies at the School of Languages and Literatures at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He's also taught at the universities of Oxford and Edinburgh. His special interests are the early development of Islamic law, particularly the school of Imam Malik, and the early development of various readings, Qur'at uh, of the Qur'an. His publications include The Origins of Islamic Law, the Qur'an, the Muwatta, and Medina al-Amal, Original Islam, Malik, and the, Mad the Madhab of Medina, and Early Islam in Medina, Malik, and his Muwatta as well as numerous articles on early Islamic law, early Quranic manuscripts, and the application of Islamic law in the modern world, particularly in relation to economic and environmental issues. He's currently researching on the Diwan, these are collected poems, of the 15th century Egyptian Sufi master, Ali Wafa al-Iskandari, as well as certain other early Shadali texts. Now, today, uh, Yasin has kindly agreed to discuss one of the, the most important texts in the whole of Islam, no less. And it's this one called Amuata of Imam Malik. There we go. That's uh, one edition. Um, this is the Aisha uh, Bewley translation. There's actually a, a more recent one that's literally just come out um, a few months ago as well. Um, so can you just introduce us to this seminal work? The thing to bear in mind first is where does it come from? What is its geographical origin? And the answer to that is quite simply Medina. So the Medina of the Prophet wasallam and his companions. And Imam Malik was studying there. He was living there. He was teaching there. And the Muatta represents his I'm trying to think of the right word now, compilation of the knowledge that he had acquired there and his presentation of that in, you could almost say, in a one-volume form. Mm. That conjures up another issue, which is that we are still talking about the time of books and writing. And Imam Malik is really indicating something that is not books and not writing, but is the actions of people. 
Right. So when we talk about the amal of the people of Medina, amal is a word that just means action, what people do or what people did, you could say historically speaking. And uh, so its importance is that it is the Medina of the Prophet وسلم, in action after the death of the Prophet وسلم, and through the first three praiseworthy generations. I say three praiseworthy generations because there's the famous hadith of the, it's the three generations, my generation, the ones after them, the ones after them. So that's why it's always considered the companions, <clears throat> the successors, and the successors of the successors. And Malik comes just after that. He's not a successor, but he learned from people who included he, he, he was really that early so you have the first three successors that the first is the the best track the generation then the, the, yes. the next best of the generation after that and the next best of the generation after that so that's the first three yes. generations then yes. you get malik himself um yes then you get to then you get to that time yes right. so he was born around the year 93 or something hijri and wow. died in the year 179 so it's that first century first history century that is if you like uh the one that Merlik is living in it's incredibly yeah. early i mean and we actually have I, I was looking into this we actually even have uh manuscripts of his work uh that, that are dated to his lifetime and we actually have physical you know we we have that, able to have this physical connection with a man who was just three generations after the prophet yes that is you've you've said it in a nutshell that's it there are there are fragments I mean, there isn't a, a complete manuscript, but there are fragments of the Muatta from a very early period. Right. And um, we're dealing with the book that comes from that. Yeah, yeah. So um, tell me more about the book itself. So it, what is it? Is it a book of Hadith? You mentioned about the actions, uh, the Amal of the people mm -hmm. of Medina, which... For those who don't know, it is is located in what's called Saudi Arabia today, of course, although Saudi Arabia didn't exist then, of course, Arabia no. or, or, the, or the Hijaz, whatever. But um, so is it a book of law? Is it a book of Hadith? Is it a book of uh, narrations about the actions of the people? Of Medina? What, what is it? Or is it all, all of those and more? How do we classify it? I think one has to say it is all of those and more. <laughs> right. Exactly. But it starts off with it is a very sound book of Hadith. That mm. is without question <laughs> accepted by the Hadith scholars. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And in fact, they say that Bukhari and Muslim built their books on the Muatta, on the, 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 the narrations recorded in the Muatta. So it's a very um, uh, a very solid collection. But Imam Malik didn't just include hadiths. He also included opinions of 
I was going to say various people. That, that's that's a bit too vague. Perhaps he included opinions of his teachers, of his teachers' teachers, and more than just hadith. In other words, more than just. But let's just backtrack a bit. When we say hadith, most people understand a hadith with an isnad going back to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Now, what you have in Malik is you have plenty of those, but you have other things, which is the isnad going back to the companions. That also right. is sort of fairly well known elsewhere. And you have Isnads yeah. going back to the Tabi'in and going back to the scholars of his age as well. Mm-hmm. So you have a, um, I'm tempted to use the word multiform, but that tends to have a different content, connotation. It, mm, and it is a book of Amal. So he will say sometimes, he says, this is the practice with us that I have found no disagreement about. This is what we do here. And he will he will have a, a number of phrases uh, that he uses of that nature. This is the sunnah with us about which there is no dispute, which I have found the people of our city following, uh, and so on and so forth. So they will, he will talk about the sunnah and uh, scholar Abdullah, who you may come across and know about in the States. He, uh, many years ago, did an excellent um, thesis where he indicated the importance of these terms, these so-called sunnah terms. Mm. And they do go back to the Prophet and at the very least the time of the Prophet which in a sense is the same thing because you have a group of people doing something in one place at one time and Mm. that gets recorded in this textual form. So. I, mean, I, I know this is slightly <clears throat> off topic, but I just can't help um, be aware of the contrast between what you've just said. You said, well, why Medina? Medina was the, the place where the prophet lived and established his, his polity, his society. Um, that's where Islamic law was first uh, you know, manifest in a natural governing system. The people knew him. He lived with them. That They learned from him how to live as good Muslims and so on and in Medina. And so this is the very place that Imam Malik was j- just several generations later, uh, the best place on earth really to, to, to learn. And the, the, what, what struck me was a contrast with um, someone called Jesus of Nazareth, uh, obviously born in, in Palestine and uh, in Galilee and so on, but his lived experience, um, the way he, 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 he lived his life and, and so on was quickly lost in the, um, within a matter of just a few years, in the gentilization of the the religion, where it was no longer you're no longer imitating Jesus as a historical person, um, how he lived his life, how he dressed, how he behaved, that that it became quite different. It was focused on alleged events, you know, towards the end of his life. So we're no longer imitating the man, knowing that the human being Jesus that was completely lost. Um, we don't even know how he looked. I mean, we don't even know how Jesus looked. There's no description of him. And yet, if you go to the Muatta, there's actually um, a, a passage, so a passage which describes how the prophet, peace be upon him, actually looks. You know, he, he looked like this. He, he wasn't too tall. He wasn't too short. He was this. He was that. The color of his hair. That's all there. Yet we have yeah. no idea how Jesus looked at all. And I know in churches, you'll see pictures, usually of white people, I've noticed, white guys, at least in, in England, <clears throat> for some reason. Yeah, he was he wasn't white at all. But um, but that's been lost. But in Islam, we even know what he looks like, thanks to uh, the, the, the preserved texts of uh, Imam Malik. And I think that's extraordinary. Well, you've 
hit on another thing which I think is absolutely critical, which is that we talk about the Prophet and his companions. Mm. And I often think about the importance of his companions and that it was those are the people who kept company with him and the, the definition of a companion is a Muslim, somebody who believed in Allah and the Prophet and saw the Prophet So he kept company in the sense that he actually saw him physically mm. and believed in his message. And that if that is the companion. And what we have is a large number of companions. I don't know the. I, I wish I could give you a, a figure. I'm thinking of 10,000 weeping eyes. I think when the Prophet died, or there were 20,000 weeping eyes and 10,000 companions, and everyone has two eyes. And that was how the transmission happened. That was mm. how it took place. Mm. Because initially, there were no hadith scholars, there were no bits of paper and this and that and the other. I mean, we said they were, uh, later, very soon afterwards, you get fragments. But these people were keeping company with mm. this man, with the Prophet learning from him, practicing according to what he was doing. As he said, pray as you see me doing the prayer. Yeah. Do hajj as you see me doing hajj. Yeah. And they had that advantage. They had that Again, I'm saying a nice positive word, but I can't think of it at the moment. But they had that um, uh, gift that they were able to do it like that. So mm -hmm. they had that. So there's the question of the company. Now, Jesus, I don't know. I'm not a scholar of uh, you know, the Christian church. But what I would assume from what I've heard is that even if you say 12 disciples, that's 12 individuals. That's not a community. What we have with Medina is we have many, many more than 12. Yeah, yeah. 10,000, 20,000, whatever, uh, who were living in a place at a time who put the, the matter into practice. Yeah. No, and that, that is a striking, striking difference. <clears throat> I mean, another thing without going into mentioning names is a frequent motif, though, I, I've, I've noticed in certain missionary polemics that. Uh, the earliest collection of hadith we uh, we have about the about Muhammad hundreds of years, two or three hundred years after the time of Muhammad, they say, uh, in Bukhari uh, and and Muslim, and it's always struck me as very odd. I mean, there's one individual I say I'm not going I don't want to give him any any notoriety by mentioning his name, but he even has a, apparently a PhD. Um, he, he said this in a video recently about the huge gap between the historical Muhammad and the earliest hadith. Uh, we have, and I'm left thinking, has he never heard of Al Muwatta? I mean, this is perhaps the earliest extant collection we have, and as you say, this is just three generations. I mean, the the, the gap is much much shorter, um, and, and this is very impressive. And, and isn't this isn't it the golden chain that it's called? Didn't someone call it? The yes, golden chain? golden chain of authority. Yes, I got the, well, that's um, yeah, that's. <laughs> I'm hesitating because I know it, it, there's there's Ibn Omar in it at the end. Nafir from Ibn Omar from the Prophet. And, and Nafir is one of, he's actually one of Imam Malik's main hadith teachers. So yeah. we have Malik from Nafir, the Mola, that's the freed slave of Ibn Omar, from Ibn Omar, who was the son of the Caliph Omar. Right. Uh, back to the Prophet because Ibn Omar got directly from the Prophet he got knowledge directly yeah, from yeah. 
So, so, <coughs> so that is a that's known as the golden chain of authority. Now, that's in human terms as opposed to book terms. Uh, that's human talking to each other rather than rather than written forms. But there is evidence. That's actually very good evidence, very strong evidence. I wish I, I, I maybe I even got it. Um, if I can just lean over and, and lean away, <laughs> because there are <clears throat> papyri in particular that are dated, and the the like the best ones, if you like, are dated with both a Greek date and the Muslim date. So you can right. then collect the one with the other or, or uh, calibrate the one with the other so you yeah. can say oh yes this is such a time and yeah. again there are sorry I have to take my glasses off so I can read contrary to what people mostly imagine yeah. uh, <laughs> yes there's there's epigraphic material that's been found recently in Saudi Arabia which yields dates such as 23 24 now that's in Hijri terms. The twenty-three Hijra is after the Prophet actually emigrated then from Mecca to Medina during his own lifetime. Yes. So this twenty-three Just years after, after, his after death. that event. Oh, after yeah. So that's maybe 10, 15 years after the death of the Prophet. So. Yeah. So it's uh, really, really. Oh, so this has been dated to within 10, 15 years of his death. Yeah. Right. And this is this is referred to as the time when Omar died. So that links it in directly wow. to the second caliph, Omar, the year when he died. And then there's 91H. Uh, the point is that there, there are dates to this material. And um, all the ones... Oh, yes, sorry, what, are talking about Hadith material here? The, the, the uh, no, no, this is only one case. There's um, a papyrus... Uh, yes, papyrus that's Perf, P-E-R-F, I don't know what that relates to, 558. That's the, the numbering of the, of, the, of the papyrus. And that's that cross-reference date I was talking about, using both Greek and Arabic, Hijri dating, right. indicating a year 22 in Hijri wow. terms. Wow. Now, that means something happened 22 years before that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Which is what we're talking about. And uh, as I said, then there's these other ones of 23 and 24, etc., um 91 age is also um okay. in a different uh, circumstance so what we have is a uh, effectively a very strong historical record let's say historical i was going to say textual let's not go down the the textual route at this point let's just say a strong uh, historical record and historical memories of these events and if you counter that, if you try and suggest anything else, you have the evidence of history against you. Mm. I went to Medina not that long ago, maybe let's say, I won't exaggerate, let's say 10 years ago or something like that. And I was shown a place called the Autumn of Beni Waqif. I remember the name because we went there and visited it. And the man who was with us said, yes, that was where the Prophet did the prayer, here, that place. And then we went to another place and said, this is where Ka'ab ibn al-Ashraf, who was one of the enemies of the Prophet, this was where his um, 
Hessen, his stronghold. This is where his fortress was. And you can see the ruins. They're, they're there. And in fact, and then, the, well, I won't, uh, that, that would be a little bit polemical to put in that. But um, so these things are known about and have been, knowledge of them has been retained. And then you have a move from the spoken word to the written word. Now right. that's a whole other, if you like, that's a whole other talk. That's a whole other uh, discussion. But one has to recognize that they didn't write books in that early period. That wasn't what they were interested in. They were interested in doing things. They were interested in action. They did have qadis. They had judges. They had people who were trying to <coughs> uh, carry out the law. But they weren't in the process of writing books, so it wasn't a sort of bookish culture until later. Now, Imam Malik comes at the beginning of that let's make it a book culture time. Yeah. Because that wasn't his, when he grew up, he wasn't writing loads and loads of um, books. So, so the question is, well, what, why, why did, what motivated Imam Malik then to put it in writing, given that the the convention, it seems, was more an oral culture where where knowledge was transmitted from person to person. The golden chain was an oral chain, you say, although it was ultimately written down. Bakari obviously yeah. wrote, you know, his famous hadith collection. So, what what motivated him to break with that tradition and write why this is a famous book? Well, that is the big question, <laughs> and it's an extremely interesting question of that shift from spoken to written, mm. or oral to written now it happened with the quran happened with the quran quite early and then it also happened with what later becomes the hadith i'm not the again the, i'm not the expert on on uh, that particular uh, side of things although i have a sense of what happened because we have other scholars particularly the other madhabs like imam shafi is the kind of key person i think in many respects and there becomes a, a, it's like you have to have a, a full isnad and you have to have ideally you have a, a written isnad and you what was acceptable before turns out to not be acceptable you can't just have what some market official was talking about Imam Shafi uses these uh, roughly these words he says how can I accept what some market official said, and I don't even know who he is. Yeah. Imam Shafi was expecting names and a link of names, one to the other, going back to the Prophet, which is when you that's when you get prophetic hadith. So yeah. then the hadith has to be not just the golden chain, but it has to be X from Y from Z that the Prophet said. And he said he's happy with that. If that X and Y and Z can be verified and um trusted he said then i'm happy with that text then you have the question of how to interpret the text and how to act on the text and it may be that there's more than one it may be many things so then you get the the question of the the scholars of the law the different madhabs so why is it for example we have abu hanifa he's the earliest yeah yeah imam malik imam shafi imam ahmed ibn hanban now they're in a they're in a, a line of development <clears throat> this tradition that we're talking about 
No, no. They, they, these people actually knew each other, didn't they? I, I mean, they, there was a personal connection between. Is that true with well, all of them? Definitely or? with. <clears throat> I mean, there's there's not polemics. That's the wrong word. But there's there's um, wanting your man to be top sort of thing. So so Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he is no sorry the other way around. Abu Hanifa. Of the the five, what are, well the four, what are known as the four madhabs, the four schools yeah. of law, so Sunni Islam, yeah, yeah, of Sunni Islam, yeah. Hmm. Now they are, in a sense, you could say they're the big guys. <laughs> yeah. Now, Abu Hanifa was in Kufa. We understand that he visited, he visited Medina. All Muslims would have tried to do that. He did that amongst yeah. the others, and. It's understood that he met Malik and you know was quite impressed by Malik and said this young sort of um, how do you put it Ashkar uh, uh, is the word in Arabic it's a bit like sort of redhead or something like that that's the word that gets used what the actual meaning is in real terms I, I would hesitate to say and now Abu Hanifa died in the year 150 right. The year 150 was the same year that Imam Shafi was born. Hmm. And we said that Imam Malik was alive, uh, born in the 90s of the, yeah. the first century and lived to 179. And then Imam Shafi is, two, uh, is 150. So I think he died 241, something like 241, 204, 204. Forget that, what I just said. Died in the, the year 204. So you have that period of let's keep it simple let's say from 100 the year 100 through to the year 200 that is if you like the formative period of of, of islamic law yeah, and yeah. then the next century after that that's when you get the bukhari the muslim the tirmidhi the nasai and all the other hadith collections so that's not until the effective well let's, let's simplify again call it the third century so maybe the beginning of the third century going through to the end of the third century. No, that's, that's pretty much it. And Imam Malik is and Imam Abu Hanifa, they're in the second century. So that second century is the real formative period, which yeah. then results in all of these books because people want to record. They know that, well, <clears throat> first of all, they would have had contact with other literate cultures. That, I think, is self-evident. And they would have seen the importance of preserving this knowledge. Yeah. Beyond just people and actions, they would have seen a necessity to put it down in writing, which is what I think is the beginning of the story. That's what happened. Now, when Merik is putting his words down, those words are um, they're hadiths and they are people's actions. So they're both things. What tends to happen then and again, I'm simplifying big time. But what tends to happen then is that things get systematized. So that instead of just having this sort of open-ended practice in the city of Medina with these people, some of which we know, some of which we don't know, you then have the the sort of, if you like, the Shafi'ite thesis. If I'm correct in attributing it to Imam Shafi, whereby you need a, a solid isnad before you can hand on anything, before you can uh, pass down anything as knowledge, as a text. 
And that does happen. That happens. So then you have the collections of Bukhari and Muslim. If you open Bukhari and Muslim, you're going to find da -da -da -da, from X, from Y, from Z, da -da -da, that the Prophet said, da -da -da -da, X, Y, Z, that the Prophet said, da -da -da -da, X, Y, Z, that the Prophet said. Everything is attributed back to the Prophet and nothing else is included. In the Muatta, yeah. you might find um, Ibn Omar said, or uh, Omar ibn al Khattab. Uh, said this or he did that or, or something. So you have a, a much broader, if you like, yeah. pool of scholars and it, the, the whole process tends to get limited down. Right. I think to use a rather, I hope it's a fair analogy, that's in a sense, now one has to be really careful here because people don't always understand, but that's in a sense what happens also with the Qur'an, with the text of the Qur'an. In the early period, there's evidence of various, we we're talking about variants, there's evidence of many variants. And then Sidna Uthman, the third caliph, said, no, no, he heard that there was dispute going on in Azerbaijan and various other places. We have to unite the people on one Mus'haf. Now, it doesn't mean one exact Mus'haf. Some people take it that it has to mean that. But they, no. Um, it means one basic skeleton and within that skeleton there are various possibilities that are allowed that have been recorded from people now if that happened with the quran imagine what the situation would be like a couple of hundred years later with mm -hmm. other, other than the quran so mm. i mean this ambiguity <clears throat> yeah this ambiguity is something we're not as modern people these days always comfortable with i think isn't it because <laughs> That for some reason, in the classical Islam, it's something that people understood and were comfortable with, it's recognized by scholars, mm. even rejoiced in by scholars. But now, you know, we, we have this kind of, uh, I'm not sure why, this very rationalistic, systemic kind of desire you for absolute yeah. uniformity, you know. And, and this is new. This is this, this, this abhorrence of, uh, in fact, there's a German scholar who re recently wrote a book on this very question of, of ambiguity. I forget his name. But I can see it over there. I won't get it out. Um, but th there has been this shift, this this change in, in in sensibilities, perhaps, about this issue. Absolutely, and that's it. And that's in a sense, that's the history of Islam. Mm -hmm. That putting one's knowledge of Islam, if you like, into that new framework, because the old framework is no that that would be misunderstood, but. Um, Uh, it comes. It becomes a bookish enterprise. Yes, yes. Whereas before it was, at the very least, more than that. Yeah. Just touching very briefly, because this is something that will concern modern, so-called modern people, is this whole thing about oral transmission of knowledge from person to person. It's not just you, you hear gossip. I mean, you know, these are reputable, knowledgeable, acknowledged people who verbally not textually pass on knowledge say hadith for example yes i mean it's possibly the case that we as i'm saying feel uneasy about that today i mean because we want something written down although even that's kind of disappearing now there's so much you know we, we can change things and the latest technology we can manipulate photographs you know photographs are not reliable anymore uh we can't trust them i mean as being necessarily authentic there is this kind of doubt now in the uh, but, I mean, in terms of the oral transmission of knowledge, 
of the Quran, of course, which is Mutawata, massively transmitted through yeah. hundreds of thousands of people from the beginning. So we know exactly, you know, it's the Quran. It's not changed. But but this oral transmission was key, wasn't it? Uh, but what was it reliable? What was it something that we can now look back? Because it's the pre, you mentioned the Muat is the first literary deposit. <coughs> yeah. Uh, can, can we... How do you know anything is reliable? I mean, everybody, everybody listening has to just think of that question. If somebody comes to you and says something, how do you know that it's reliable? What is yeah. it in the human being that says, yes, I trust this person, I don't trust that person? Yeah, yeah. There's that element. And in a sense, that is what Islam's all about. It's all about trusting other people. And right. I think, I think, for, again, uh, one's in danger of going off into another uh, sort of you know, rabbit hole or tangent or whatever it is. But um, there is this question of, I mean, you know, the English phrase, he's a man of his word. People will say that and they will mean it. At least they used to. Now, why is it that somebody can even claim that? And I used to think this with the, you know, one's teachers, that you sit with your teachers and some of them have a, a love for the subject and, a, and a, uh, a connection with the subject matter that comes across. And you trust them. Now, why do you trust them? What is it in the heart that says, yes, I can trust this man, I can trust this teacher. Yes, this is a good teacher. Because that's what one experiences. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know the theory of it. I, you know, I'm not into sort of you know, cognitive psychology or, or whatever it might be. And, oh, well, this is because there's a certain uh, chemical in the book. You know. I mean, I have no idea what that is. But I know that in, in practice, one trusts people. And the other thing is that you can remember something that your grandfather said. Mm. I can. I'm sure you can. And if you have documentation, then that's even stronger. But the thing is that there is a, a memory at work here. And that, I think, is part and parcel of the, of the business. But and the, people, the criteria that people like Bukhari used was, you know, checking the biography, the, 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 did these people exist? You know, who were they? Could they have met the person they claimed to receive knowledge from? Did they yeah. checks, checks and more checks, uh, you know, to, to ensure the, you know, the reliability, the authenticity, the integrity of the transmission process that happened orally. It wasn't just, oh, well, I heard someone just say in the marketplace, oh, write that down, that becomes my knowledge. It's not like that. So there was, there was an attempt to make this a solid process, I guess. Absolutely. And that's what one, in a sense, ends up with. I say ends up with, because now the problem is if you want to be a scholar of, well, want to be, I suppose, I don't know if that's the right word, but um, anybody who intends to be a scholar of Islam, he has to take on all of this, you could almost say baggage. Now, I just wonder, was it like that in the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. putting the question. I'm not giving the answer because I don't know that one can give the answer. I, I, I'm alive now. They were alive then. Yeah. But yeah. it has to be that, I mean, think of people's memories of the Prophet, but not their memories, their, their love. They had love for this man. If you have love for somebody, you think about them in a different way. You remember them in a different way. If you yeah. don't have love, so it's, it's a completely different situation. Yeah, and yeah. you mentioned a few sort of uh, detractors. I kind of asked myself, well, 
it's a bit unfortunate they don't have love for this man they don't have love for the subject yeah. so how are they going to appreciate something that they don't have love for i mean again jumping sideways but i can remember as, a, as an undergraduate well i'm sure everybody knows but you have teachers of buddhism they love buddhism teachers of chinese they love chinese teachers of this they love it all teachers of islam were fortunately some of them had a very soft soft spot for islam but a lot of them and across the country for example you find people that basically don't they don't have no love for islam whatsoever no love for the prophet whatsoever no love for anything and yet they're studying this thing their whole lives you think why are they studying that when they don't even have love for it when go to something that you love you know, do something that you love. yeah i mean I, as when i was an undergraduate studying christian theology in the bible i think all my teachers were uh yeah i think they were all christians uh or, they weren't all conservatives some were very liberal but nevertheless they were, were kind of in that big broad church called christianity uh yes. there were no, no hostile atheists teaching christianity but in islam uh in the west anyway in the, uh, in the western academy I think most scholars are not even Muslim. I, I mean, they're, they're non-Muslims, whereas most scholars of Christianity in the West are certainly Christian. Even Bart Ehrman, who's now an atheist, started uh, as a biblical scholar, started off as a committed Christian. He was an evangelical of all things when he became uh, a biblical scholar. Only later did he lose his faith. So even he doesn't kind of disprove the rule. So this is kind of an odd thing here, though. The average Muslim scholar, sorry, a scholar of Islam in the West is not a Muslim. The average Christian scholar of Christianity is a Christian. And, and this affects the whole way this is taught and perceived. And, you know, you talk about the love for the subject. There is no love for the subject in many yeah. of these people. Yeah, it's a kind of strange situation. I mean, it's the one we're in. Yeah. But it is, uh, it is kind of, uh, I just think of it as odd. <laughs> it is. I, 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 one fact, I remember when I was doing this, one of my teachers taught me patristics. This is that kind of the early church theology. And he used to say, and when our Lord said this on this occasion, I think our Lord, you know, he, was like, he referred to Jesus as yeah. our Lord in an academic class. It was like, yeah. that was very striking, you know. Um, yeah. But you wouldn't get the equivalent in Islamic context, you know. And, and as Muhammad, peace be upon him, said in this Hadith yes. Bukhari, uh, would one yeah. hear that in a seminar on Islam at Oxford or Cambridge or wherever? I, I probably not. I, I'm not saying we should yeah. or should. I'm just saying probably not. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's not yeah. banned, um, but yeah. it's, uh, it's it's not usual. Let's just say that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, just my, my my only other question, really, uh, and it's part two, if I may, is how mm. is what are relevant to us today. We situated its historical context, the nature of the text, what it covers. It's the first formulation of Islamic law, uh, amongst other things, the practice, the actions of the people of Medina at that time. But what can it, uh, what, what is its relevance? What can it teach us today? And by today, I mean in 21st century, the West or the world, other different lessons from different places. But how do we engage this text or relate to this text as, mo as so-called modern people? Well, <laughs> That's obviously a very big question, but I think yeah. it's also a very important question. And I think that there is there is an answer, or at least there are answers to it. And it goes back to this question of what is amal? Amal means action. Now, did the Prophet call people to words? No, he called people to actions. And I think that it might sound a little bit simplistic, but I also think it's true 
that the underlying ethos of the Muatta is the ethos of acting upon this knowledge. And that's not the same as amassing the knowledge. Right. Act upon it is very different. In fact, um, again, I'm tempted to lean over and, and uh, find and one lead of away, as I said before. <laughs> because uh, it's the grandson of Abu Bakr. Now, we've mentioned the oh, yeah. second caliph, Omar, we mentioned the third caliph, Othman, and there's the first caliph, Abu Bakr. And his son, actually his grandson, was... Um, I, I hate to be recorded as getting these things wrong, but is uh, Muhammad ibn al-Qasim ibn Yes. So al-Qasim ibn Muhammad. So he's the grandson of the first caliph, Abu Bakr. Now he said, this is recorded in one of the things recorded in the Mata. He said, I remember a time when people were not impressed by words, to which Merik adds the comment, that the reference is to action, al-amal, and that it's a person's actions that are looked at, not his words. Wow. Now, what we find nowadays, and what I'm, you know, in danger of, of uh, the same trap, and certainly most academics are in the same trap of relying on words. You give a lecture, you give a talk, you, you do this, do that, whereas it's really the action that matters. How can you talk about generosity and then not be generous, for example? Yes. How can you talk about <clears throat> honesty and not be honest? Yes. How can you, all of these qualities, now they're in a sense the real qualities of the human being. Now, the, the best academics, in my experience, they embody these qualities. They say what's true. They're generous. They're, I'm trying to think of some other um, good qualities, uh, courageous, or whatever it is, uh, these sort of things. Now, <coughs> those people <coughs> have a quality about them, which not everybody does. But they are known by their actions and not their words. If they have some words as well, and that's a sort of added plus, if you like, but... Um, even if, again, this idea of your grandfather or grandmother or grandparents, you remember them because they treated you in a certain way. And they were, it was always forgiving and generous and overlooking your faults and, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. That was just natural because they were your grandparents and they had that attitude towards you. But they also... They, well, I don't mind anyway, uh, they, they spoke the truth. Mm. In fact, one of my, I mean, this is, this is autobiographical. Uh, I was trying to do some research on my forebears. And, um, well, there are two things, two particular people. My grandfather, he was imprisoned in Dartmoor at the time of the First World War. Because he was a conscientious, conscientious, excuse my pronunciation, conscientious objector. Right, right. And that was considered traitorous or treacherous yeah. or whatever the word is. You yeah. were, you were supposed to fight for your country. And he said, how can I go and kill people when God says thou shalt not kill? 
So exactly. that was one of people like Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher, who was also a, a conchy, uh, to use the derogatory yeah. expression, yeah. Uh, conscious subjector, uh, was also uh, incarcerated uh, uh, for for his uh, crime of objecting to killing objecting to killing people. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that for me has a, has an important meaning, and I remember. I remember, yeah, I remember meeting him, and he had that quality about him. He was, uh, you know, a man of honesty. Wow. Now, if you if you recognise that in someone else, <coughs> that you can have it in yourself, and you can also recognise where else you will find it. Now, with the Muslims, I found that personally. I found all those qualities of talking about generosity. Honesty. Okay, maybe the exception may exist. I'm not denying that there are exceptions around. But I'm not saying every Muslim, by virtue of being a Muslim, is automatically trustworthy and so on. I'm not claiming that. But all I'm getting at is a different experience of being human and recognizing the humanness in somebody else. And um, yeah, I yeah, my, I think I, I, like you, we're both English converts to, to yeah. Islam. In fact, we were born, without, without mentioning too many details, born in the same town in Essex. We're both from the same, yeah. Uh, yeah. as we discovered when we met, we think, good grief, we're both born in the same place. Um, um, but what, what I find fascinating, and, and this is, you know, a dour point, really, as far as I'm concerned, is that everything you've said chimes very perfectly, I think, with the way Jesus is portrayed in the earlier Gospels. Um, mm -hmm. When he criticizes, say, the Pharisees, for being like whitened sepulchres, this idea of like exterior, you know, they said the right things, they looked good, well, maybe they looked pious, but inside they were, you know, they were rotting corpses. The idea of a sepulchre is a grave, it's like a tomb. Inside yeah. they are dead and decaying. So, <laughs> and the emphasis on the interior motivation. So, so don't just not commit adultery, several of them out obviously but but don't you know lust after your neighbor's wife or something you know don't just don't yeah. commit murder but don't hate your neighbor and so on these extraordinary what they call antitheses but they're really just not really antitheses at all they are just a deepening of the external to the interior to the internal but the, the point being of course is is about behavior so you're not just yes. oh I didn't, I, I didn't kill that person so so oh i'm a righteous man no I didn't hate that person. I didn't manifest hatred towards that person. So as you say, you were kind or you were loving and so on. So the emphasis here, Jesus, and of course, he's not being unique. He's being a Jew, an, an Israelite. This, this is very Judaic. Uh, mm. Emphasis on behavior, on action, on law as well is, is very uh, Jewish in that classical Jewish, biblical sense. I mean, I don't mean modern Jewish. I mean classical, mm. biblical Jewish uh, uh, way. So there's definitely... An, uh, uh, a convergence or uh, a, a continuity between just looking yeah. at people historically here uh, between Jesus and Muhammad, peace be upon them both in terms of what really mattered about being human. It wasn't about memorizing texts. It was living a certain way, manifesting those qualities of, of, of good qualities, yeah. which you spoke so beautifully about. Well, I mean, I, I have to agree hundred percent. And I think that is the, the, the hadith of Prophet I was sent to complete the noble qualities of character. That's right. That's now, that is, where do you find that anywhere else? I mean, if you were looking for it, would you find it in present-day Christianity? 
I don't think so. Would you? I, I mean, again, I don't. I don't want to be polemical because I mean, I'm happy with with uh, Islam having found Islam and and the Muslims that I've met who've portrayed all these uh, qualities. So, but that that is the thing. Where where is the most complete version of that view of humanity? And that is again, it is amal. You see, it is that is action. That's what's that's what. Abu Bakr's grandson was referring to, if you like, that uh, uh, since we weren't bothered with words, people can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Yeah, yeah. Talk is easy. Talk is cheap. (laughs) What are they going to do? And I have to ask myself that question as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So teaching is fortunately something which is at least praiseworthy in principle. So that's something that's worth doing. Writing, if you're writing for a good reason and you're putting across useful knowledge etc then that is also a good thing i hope but there are things that are higher than that which the if you like the average joe in the street probably knows automatically better than some scholars and that is just word of kindness so helping somebody across the road again all the things that are in the hadith they're there uh, they're, yeah. they're sort of <clears throat> staring the muslims in the face really yeah, yeah. they're not unusual either they're known by other people as well so somebody else listening could say oh so my tradition we do exactly that you know maybe in the buddhist tradition they do exactly that i don't know but um in a sense doesn't really matter because you go for the best that you can get hold of at the time and the best that i have got hold of is alhamdulillah shukrullah <coughs> the uh, the dean of the prophet i was sent to complete the noble qualities of character. So our claim is that we complete that, but we say yes to Jesus. We say yes to Moses. We say yes to Abraham. We say yes to Noah. We say the five possessors of resolve, we call them. That's our, that's our name for them. Possessors of resolve. So Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Jesus, because Muhammad is known as the Habibullah, isn't he? The, the beloved of Allah. Jesus is the Ruhullah, the spirit of Allah. Moses, Musa is the Kalimullah, the one that was spoken to by Allah. Ibrahim is Khalilullah, he's the close friend of Allah. And Nuh is Najeeullah, he's the one who's saved by Allah. So, I mean, those are, they're in our tradition. They're, we don't yeah, just yeah. They're in the Muslim tradition. They're obviously they're in the, the biblical tradition. Um, how can I say potentially, or that's not the right word either. But for us, there's a complete history of prophets. And and the, the thing that many Western people don't grasp, uh, coming back to this idea of, of actions and behaviour, is that okay, they, they think Islam is a religion. So you have Christianity as a religion, you have Buddhism, you have whatever. But that's not really to understand what Islam is at all, I, I would argue. It's a deen. A deen isn't religion in the sense of, well, I have my, my beliefs in my head and I go to my religious place on Sunday morning. It's not like that. It is a, it's a, it's a whole way of life. Yes, it incorporates religious aspects, of course, yeah. and prayer and so on. There's much more than just that narrow Western conceptualization of what religion is, like a private thing. It encompasses everything. Like the Sharia encompasses everything. 
everything that human being can be and do and say is encompassing because the tree tree is not all to do with criminal law that's very tiny it's to do with how we pray how we treat people how we inheritance our business Which, transactions etc starts off in worship yeah the, Allah created man to worship him so then the question is how do you best do that yeah but that's that's the start point the start point is is worship and of course that's also it's anti-self because you want to keep yourself out of it as much as possible the more yourself is in it the more you're not really worshiping god you'll end up worshiping yourself or aggrandizing yourself mm. and we say allahu akbar <laughs> I mean, it's simple but it's not so simple yeah. what does it really mean in life it means that we make allah the main focus of our activity make it our qibla our, our prayer direction um well for me those are the those are the things that tie together and the yeah. book of al-muwatta is something that cuts through a little bit of the scholasticism and yeah. brings us back to the start point of what are you actually doing what are you doing with your life what are you doing with your limbs what are you doing with your action with your with your strength and and so on and so forth and um, put that in the path of worship that's what I, so for me that's what the muwatta in a sense suggests there's actually Again, we don't have time at the moment, and I haven't got the 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 text that I want. But there's a a wonderful text in the Mwata where one of the companions, one of the, in other words, one of the people who kept company with the Prophet, a very famous companion, Ibn Mas'ud, he says, "Words to the effect of you're in a time when X, and a time will come when Y." And, so, and you have these things, uh, and you just think, "Whoa." the time that he's talking about that's going to come is the time that we're in now. Yeah. He says, there was a, or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe I'm quoting it wrong already. And uh, so please, uh, any uh, listeners, excuse my, my lack of certainty with these texts. If I had them all memorized, I'd be able to just, you know, quote them, but I don't. But um, ah. Maybe I can find it later and we can um, yeah, no. put it into the mix because it's, yeah. it's, a very, it's very good. But, I mean, it starts off with when people will, you know, they keep their talk short and do lots of actions and be generous and not expect someone else to give them and so on. So then the time will come, he says, where people will have long talks and they will yeah. expect. <clears throat> from other people and so on so there's there's five categories I, I... yeah no i i know what you mean and there, there's also hadith that say you what we have already alluded to the best generation is my generation time yes. but but every succeeding generation is going downhill it's getting worse yes. and worse and worse until we hit the end times which many people think we're in uh now so it's going to be our own end times anyway yeah. for yeah. ourselves yeah. before yeah. our own deaths yeah, it's true. you're in your end time. I'm in my end time. All the listeners are in their end time now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is very true. And uh, yeah, absolutely. So well, I think that that's probably a, a wonderful uh, uh, note to to end. Uh, as so we've been discussing Amwata, Imam Malik, and uh, Asia Buley translation. There is a new one by 
Mohammed Fadel. Mohammed from University of Toronto. Um, you had the privilege of meeting uh, um, back in February at Zaytuna. But he, he's produced a new critical, what he calls a new critical edition um, of, of this text with, with much more um, kind of notes and critical apparatus than the, the Bewley one, a, new, a fresh new translation as well. Uh, those are the only two translations I'm aware of in English anyway. Um, but I, I found it very enjoyable just to dip in. Uh, you know, earlier I was reading the... You know, a deeth of the description of the prophet's appearance himself, how he looked. That's that's quite quite joyful. Just to to to, what one can dip into that as a layman, I think, and just uh, gain some beautiful benefit, I think, from the text. So, um, yeah. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, sir, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, to talk. You with you. Excuse me, my uncertainties and uh, <clears throat> rabbit hole diversions, or. <laughs> Uh, no, no, it was it was all all, all a great pleasure. Uh, I thank you for your for your expertise, uh, and um, you, just finally, you you are uh, I understand working on um, some poetry, some collected poems of yes. a ninth slash fifteenth century Egyptian Sufi master. What well, just very briefly, why did you pick on this particular collection of poems by this particular guy? Well, what was the reason? My sheikh said to me, "Translate that book." Okay. <laughs> and at first I didn't. And then I didn't I didn't have a copy of it. There's a copy in the British Library, so I got hold of that. There's and then somebody else that I um, met later, an, a, a, another sheikh. Um he heard that I was doing that and he just gave a copy, gave me a copy, physical copy of the printed version. So I was able to then put them together. So I had a manuscript copy or a photocopy from the British Library and manuscript copy, and it's also available in one or two other places. And uh, and for readers and listeners, etc., if you go to Ali Wafa, D1 of Ali com, I think, you will find what I've done so far. Oh. It's up in the public domain. It's not a a finished it's not an edited final version but yeah, yeah. it's what i've done so far it's right. a long it's a long process it's like you know 450 poems and i oh, really? that's a lot I've, I've got past 50 i'm on to sort of like 60 and i come anyway there's lots of difficulties with it but uh, okay well we should about best yeah Thank you. Well, that, that's great. So something we can look at uh, as well. Well, thank you uh, very much indeed for your time, sir, said again. And um, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me in the first place. Until thank you. Until next time. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.